Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read verses 16 and 17 again. And just think about them for a little while if we can do that. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Did you know your Bible is profitable? It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the first lesson about the inspiration of Scripture, we took our doctrinal statement, and I put it on the screen for you, and we walked through the different words that are in that statement to make sure you understand what those words mean. Things like inspiration, things like inerrancy, things like infallibility. Those kinds of words. We talked about the canon of Scripture, that the canon of Scripture is closed. God is not writing new books that are being added to the Bible, that the canon of Scripture is closed, and that what we hold in our hands is, in fact, the Word of the living God. We can uh, bank our entire lives. As a matter of fact, our entire eternal destiny rests on this book, what this book tells us, what this book says to us. And we're looking at that subject of this matter of the inspiration of Scripture. And I want to come back to that for just a few minutes tonight. I'm going to put some things on the screen for you as we go through here. Because, you know, these are written in sentences. And I'm going to read some of these sentences and stop and talk about some of them. But what I'm going to do is I want to add some substance to what we talked about uh, last time. by, By taking you into the Scripture and showing you that Jesus... Uh, believed the scripture was inspired. The scripture uh, claims inspiration for itself and that inspiration is absolutely essential. It's absolutely essential to us as believers in in Jesus. When Paul penned these words, uh, talking about the inspiration of scripture, all scripture, he was talking about the sacred writings those sacred writings that are found in the Old Testament. And surely he's also thinking as well of the New Testament books that were already in circulation. We find that that was a reality from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. And so when we say we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we mean we believe in its inspiration from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. We believe every part of the Word of God is inspired. But here's what's interesting as you begin looking at it. This first screen that you're going to see. Jesus himself recognized the Jewish tripartite division of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. You say, why is that important? Because Jesus was affirming the Old Testament as being the word of God. He was referring to the three parts of the Old Testament that were in his Bible. They're in our Bibles as well. It's in our Bible as well. But he was referring to the three parts of the Old Testament, and he was saying that they were inspired. These are the books of inspiration that uh, Paul is talking to Timothy about. Uh, Secondly, Jesus quoted repeatedly from the Old Testament. Did you know that? When you read through the Gospels and you read through the life of Jesus, uh, he uses the Old Testament Scripture to resist temptations. He does so to develop his arguments, to silence his critics, to teach lessons, to reveal prophecies, to defend truths, and to expose needs. And you see the scripture, Jesus using the scripture again and again, again, reminding us that while Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration, the proof of that is in the book that we hold in our hands. 
Third thing that you'll see on the screens is that he also, Jesus also accepted the Old Testament as historical. You realize that there's a whole group of people today who don't believe the Old Testament was historical. So a lot of moral stories, a lot of interesting tales, but they're not really the truth. Those things didn't really happen. But Jesus thought they happened, and Jesus referred to them repeatedly. He referred to the first marriage. He referred to the flood, to the destruction of Sodom, to the burning bush. He referred to individuals like Adam and Eve and Abel and Abraham, and on and on the list goes. Why? Because Jesus was affirming for us as we read through the Gospels that what we hold in our hands is the Word of God. A fourth screen that you'll see here. The church received the New Testament as Scripture because Jesus authorized it by sending his disciples with the same authority with which the Father had sent him. Did you realize that? When you look through the New Testament, uh, these books authored by those who were close to Jesus, those that were a part of the disciples, those that were on his inner circle. And he authorized them so that what they were saying and what they were communicating were the word or was the word of God that we hold in our hands. B.B. Warfield, somebody with whom I don't always agree, but he was a Princeton theologian and he writes, we rest our acceptance of the New Testament scriptures not on the fact that they are the product of the revelation age of the church, for so are many other books which we do not thus accept, but on the fact that God's authoritative agents in founding the church gave them as authoritative to the church which they founded. It is clear, he finishes by saying, that prophetic and apostolic origin is the very essence of the authority of the Scriptures. It came from the authority of Jesus Christ through his apostles out to us. On the screen you'll see. According to Jesus, God said that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Okay, that's Genesis 2.24. But what you discover when you turn back to Genesis 2.24, that that wasn't God that said that, that was Moses that wrote it. So why does Jesus say that God said it? When in actual fact, Moses wrote it because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Moses was recording what God wanted written. On another occasion, Jesus said, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. By the way, that's a great helpful description of inspiration in the Holy Spirit. Uh, he declared the word. But David was the author in the hand of the Holy Spirit whereby David wrote what David wrote was God breathed. Do you see that? Are, are you with me? Do you see that? Next screen says this kind of language is used throughout the Bible. Based on Psalm 69, 25, or Psalm 109, verse 8, Peter argues that the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. You know, pointing to the audience in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul proclaims the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through, the, through Isaiah the prophet. What's he telling you? This wasn't Isaiah that was saying these things. This was God speaking through Isaiah so that what they were communicating was, in fact, the inspired word of God. The same thing is true in Jeremiah 31, uh, verse 31 to 35. Uh, the author of the book of Hebrews declares the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and he goes on and quotes that passage of Scripture. Now, the whole point I'm making, and maybe not very well, is that... <coughs> Old men, the, the men of old spoke as they were moved 
by the Spirit of God. Thus, what they have given to us is the written Word of God that we have in our hands an authoritative, inspired, inerrant, infallible Bible. It is the authority of our lives, every aspect of our lives. It is the authority of every aspect of our lives. The Holy Spirit so directed the human writers that what the finished product was precisely, the finished product was precisely what he intended it to be. Sometimes you find revelation and inspiration that are joined together. Sometimes you find revelation and inspiration that are separated you find Luke, for instance. He says he went and he searched out these details and he searched out these facts. But what he ended up writing wasn't just another historical record. It was an inspired historical record of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, turn back just for a moment. Back to Second Peter, if you would. Second Peter chapter 1. And just notice what it says here in verse 20. Second Peter chapter 1. In verse 20, he says, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. You hear those words? The word interpretation means that they didn't construct it on their own. This was given to them by God so that what they recorded was what God intended for us to have. His point is that prophecy wasn't the result of the prophet's own interpretation of things. It wasn't the author's idea. I love the little word moved. They were moved. Uh, knowing this, that, no, no, that uh, no prophecies of any private of interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were, here's the word, moved by the Holy Spirit. If you look up that word, here's what you discover. It's a word that speaks of, of a ship that was driven by the winds. Uh, the sails are up, and the wind is blowing, and that ship is being moved by the wind. And that's what he's saying about inspiration. God uh, inspired these writers. He moved upon these writers, and what they have given to us is the word of the living God. They were carried along by that wind, and that means that the Holy Spirit uh, worked through these human authors, authors in such a way that what he wrote, what they wrote, was, their, was not their words but his. Now on the screens again, you'll see another of these statements. The Holy Spirit guided and controlled the writers of Scripture who used their own vocabularies and styles but wrote only what the Holy Spirit intended. And so when you look at the Old Testament, when you look at the New Testament, you have men that God moved along. And there's different understandings of, of, of inspiration. I think we have to be careful about pinpointing one particular and say he did it this specific way. I think we have to say God moved by his spirit these men along such that what they wrote weren't their words. They were the words God wanted written down so that they were inspired by the living God. Every word of the Bible is inspired by the living God. It's something that you might want to remember. The Old Testament writers refer to what they wrote as the very words of God 3,800 times. 3,800 times. New Testament writers quote the Old Testament as the word of God 320 times and refer to it at least 1,000 times. 
I mean, over and over, the Bible itself is authenticating the reality of the inspiration, whether it's the author saying, God moved me, or whether it's God in 2 Timothy telling us that he inspired and breathed through those men so that what they wrote was the inspired word of God. The, the fact of the matter is we have to hold fast to the inspiration of Scripture. There's another screen that will be on the, on the another note that will be on the screens for you. It's noteworthy that the Scriptures itself, themselves, claim to be God's word. The Old Testament has many such phrases like, as God said, or this is what the Lord says, or the word of the Lord came. More than 400 additional times it says, this is what the Lord says. And then the word of the Lord came. Do you get the idea? Over and over, the Bible is confirmed to be an inspired book. Now, why is that important? Well, that's important because there are all kinds of attacks against the Bible. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a war going on all the time to undermine the authority of Scripture, to undermine the inspiration of the Bible. You show me a church that's given up the inspiration of the Bible, and I'll show you a church that's lost the authority to preach the gospel, to teach people how to live, to disciple them, to lead them to Christ. They've lost their authority. They're, they're nothing more than a social club. They're, they don't have any authoritative word that's inspired, inerrant, infallible, that comes from God, that's given to man, that continues to be the guidebook for everybody for all time in every, in every generation. They don't have that. They're making it up as they go. Uh, there was, I don't know if they still meet or not, a Jesus seminar and a group of supposedly scholarly men who would sit down and they would vote on whether certain verses in the New Testament were to be included or not, especially from the Gospels, whether they're to be included or not, as if you're smart enough to outthink God. In, in the process of doing that, you end up with what some people call red-letter Christians, they only believe the parts of the New Testament that are in the red letters because only those are the words of Jesus and everything else is fallible and you might not be able to depend on it or rely on it. But even those Jesus scholars don't believe that all of the red letters were spoken by Jesus. You get the problem here? When churches give up the inspiration of Scripture, they get away from the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible. They, they cease to have any authority. Now we're picking and choosing what we want to believe and what we don't want to believe. We're picking and choosing what is truth and what isn't truth. And there isn't anybody in this room put all of our brains together. There aren't all of us in this room with enough brain power to outthink God. God spoke through the prophets. God spoke through the New Testament re readers. He breathed through them like a ship with a sail. He breathed and he moved them along so that they had the information that they needed. And what they wrote down was what God intended to be written down. So that what we have today is the word of God. But there are all kinds of attacks against the, word, uh, against the scripture. There's five that I'll mention to you. There are theological critics. We're not going to talk too much about that. 
They're theological critics. They're those who sit around like I just talked about the Jesus seminar, and they're sitting around trying to dissect the Word of God and pick out which parts they think is inspired and which part isn't, which parts Jesus said, which parts Jesus didn't say. How, how dumb is that? There are theological cr- critics who look at the Bible and they don't believe what it says. We, we could talk in some detail about them. There are deceived cultists. Uh, deceived cultists who want to add something to the Bible. Uh, you, you understand Joseph Smith, uh, the founder of the Mormon church, got some golden plates in New York, and he was about from the, the angel Moroni. And uh, the result was that he's supposed to restore the true church in the Americas. Um, supposed to restore the true church in the Americas, and now they have, from those golden plates, they have what? The Book of Mormon. An additional book to the Word of God, any addition to the Bible, uh, is <laughs> it's blasphemy. Yeah. There's one book that God tells us to turn to. And you, you look at the, the cultists and you will find them again and again. They always have some additional writing to add to what you already have in your hand. And the intended purpose, well, let's correct it. Let's make sure that we get another version so that it says what we need it to say so that we can exist in this world. And so there are theological critics sitting, sitting around in their, um, their ivory towers of education, and they're criticizing this, the Scripture, trying to decide whether it's true or not. They're deceived cultists who are constantly trying to add to the, the Word of God. Number three, there are emotional conclusions. Emotional conclusions. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean, I heard it, I heard it today. I was looking through Facebook, which I rarely do, but I was looking through Facebook to see if anybody said anything nice about the sermon this morning. <laughs> there wasn't anything, Steve. It wasn't there. It wasn't there. And uh, I saw one sponsored post of a particular preacher. And it said that there was a prophecy that was spoken over him. And so... You know, I did the dumb thing probably, and I clicked, and, and so I wanted to watch the video. And somebody on stage who supposedly has gotten a prophecy about this particular preacher, this is what God's going to do in your life, and this is what the Lord says to you. <clears throat> Look, I think sometimes I'm too unemotional. Um, that's a little bit of my English background. Be more stoic. You know, I'm not a hand raiser, and I don't shout and scream. Uh, I don't mind if you do. I just I mean, that's just not me. Doesn't mean I'm not jumping up and down inside, and I'm not happy on the inside. You understand people are different. But when somebody comes to me and they say, well, God told me. You know, that's, that's like a stiff arm. You can't challenge this at all because God told me. Yeah. Who are you to challenge God? Who are you to say that God didn't tell me? And you get these emotional conclusions, and the charismatic movement is full of that kind of a thing, where there's prophecies being given, and people are speaking in so-called tongues, and they're getting something from God that nobody else can know, and it's these ecstatic utterances that they have, and these emotional conclusions, well, God told me. Well, show me where God told you that. Take me to the Scripture. Show me in the Bible where God says to do this. Now, I believe the Spirit of God can lead us. 
I believe the Spirit of God can move us. I believe the Spirit of God can speak to us. But be careful. Be careful. Uh, Make sure that it's God speaking to you. And be careful not to say, God told me. Because you get close to what what these emotional, uh, charismatic churches are doing. There's cancel culture. That's the fourth attack. Theological critics deceive cultists. Emotional conclusions. The cancel culture. Don't you love the cancel culture? I'm going to come back to that one in just a moment. And then, there, then there's the modern concepts. All the, you know, we're, we're, we're modern thinkers. We're too big for this. We're too good for this. You know, that's an ancient book. Why, why in the world do you want to read from a New Testament that was written 2,000 years ago and let it govern your life today? For that matter, read from a book that's, you know, four or 5,000 years old and let it govern your life today. You, you, you want to get with the times. You want, to, you want to get with the more modern, more understandable things of our day. And they're the modern concepts. You're just sort of, uh, you know, out of step if you follow the scripture. There are all kinds of attacks. That hasn't stopped since the beginning. Remember last time in the last message we talked about, we went all the way back to Genesis chapters two and three. Who was the first one who questioned the authority of the Word of God. Who was it? It was Satan, wasn't it? And since that time, Satan continues to question the Word of God. He does it through theological critics and through deceived cultists and through these emotional conclusions, through the cancel culture that I'm going to talk to you about in a moment, and through these modern concepts. You know, get with the times kind of people, as if you're outdated. The result is when you leave the Word of God behind and you cease holding the Scripture as the final authority of your life, you are on shaky ground. Um, You're on shaky ground. For instance, did God really say he created the world as stated in Genesis 1-1? And the modern thinker says, well, that's not what the science shows. It was clearly the result of a big bang with the earth developing over millions of years through evolution. Or did God really say the Bible is his word as stated in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? Their answer is surely not the whole Bible. I mean, all of the verses of the Bible, even to Genesis 1. You mean you believe all of that created in six days? And since those verses are obviously not what God said, why should you be subject to any portion of the Bible? And they question it. Or did God really say he made male and female genders, as is stated in Genesis 1.27? I mean, surely you're not going to be limited to understanding how God created your innermost being by a book that's that old. You're divinely made and therefore divine. So choose your own gender and live as your true inner self. Or did God really say sexual intimacy is only to be enjoyed by a married man and woman, as it states in Genesis 2.24? And their answer is, if God's all loving and love is love, haven't you heard that? If love is love, isn't it man who's defiled love by making it restrictive and repressive? You want me to go on? I got about 20 of these. You follow what I'm getting at? One attack after another attack after another, undermining the authority of Scripture, calling into question, did God really say that? Did he really mean that? Listen, that's not God. That's not of God. That's Satan who seeks to undermine the word of God. If you want to read the rest of those I've gotten written here, I'll give them to you at some point. But I want to talk with you about that cancel culture. 
And I want to do this as quickly as I can because I want to finish here a little early. But I want you to think with me about the cancel culture. I mean, this is, this is the day that if you don't agree with somebody, you just cancel them, right? And if people don't agree with you, we should cancel you. And part of that comes out of the, uh, the, the thinking, the worldview that people have today. They're postmodern in their thinking. And a lot of people don't understand the difference in the way people think. They don't understand the difference in the worldviews. Back in the 17th and 18th century, during the Enlightenment period, they emphasized the autonomy of the individual, trust in the power of reason, conviction that human reason is objective and that truth can be discovered by the rational human mind. There was a new and a greater emphasis that was placed on man's ability to reform the world by his own thought, by scientific investigation and skepticism, gave birth to the evolutionary theory of Darwin. We can figure out the world. We can understand the world. We don't need God. We can do it with our own minds. If we can just reason enough, if we can be skeptical enough, if we can, we can dig deep, deep enough, if we can test enough things, the result will be that we can find the answer to the human problems. But that's a problem for people like you and me who believe the Bible. We emphasize biblical thinking. It's formed by logical analysis, certainly, but we emphasize biblical thinking. We emphasize propositional teaching a historical, grammatical interpretation of Bible passages. We embrace theological and moral absolutes as forming the foundation of our faith. And it causes us to come into conflict with modernism. You don't see modernism as much as you used to at the turn of the 20th century, the early part of the 1900s. If you were into theological institutions, modernism was everywhere. That's where they started undermining, at least in that generation, started undermining the scriptures. You don't have to believe what it says. Surely God didn't mean that. Surely the world came into existence some other way. Let's find a way to fit evolution and creation together. And they start, you know, we can figure this out. We don't live even in that world today. We live in a postmodern world. If you don't know what the postmodern thinking is, it comes out of the school system, it comes off your TV sets, it comes out of the living rooms of the kid, of the families where your kids end up uh, spending time. If you don't understand what postmodern thinking is, you want to understand the cancel culture that thinks that you should be canceled. Postmodernism is a philosophy that says absolute truth does not necessarily exist. Since the postmodernist thinks there's no real valid way to measure truth from error, acceptable from unacceptable, or right from wrong, all beliefs and all perspectives are determined to be equally valid. There can't be any propositional truth. There can't be any absolutes. In postmodernism, it's argued that each decision is equally valid and that two are... That that, that two opposing decisions can be true at the same time. I wish they had told my math teacher that. <laughs> when I had to put one plus one equals two, and I didn't want to put two, I wanted to put three because it ought to be three, right? You even think I'm crazy when I talk that way. But that's the way people talk today. They, they talk in this kind of relativism. Postmodernism, in fact, as a matter of fact, embraces relativism. 
I mean, to the highest degree. It's, it's the idea that truth and moral values are not absolute, but are relative to the persons or groups holding them. They're not intended for everybody. They're only intended for the ones who want to hold those particular beliefs. Today, those who embrace Postmodernism ridicule Christianity as intolerant and egotistical and arrogant because it claims, it, it has exclusive claims about God and about morality. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. I just preached to you, what, two weeks ago? First Corinthians chapter 5, a man in the church is sleeping with his stepmother. And we dealt with the whole matter of sexual immorality but the postmodern thinking is the kind of thinking that says, well, you know, you can't tell me how to live my life. You don't have an authoritative book. I don't believe this book anyway. It can't be inspired. There's no way you can believe all that. It's too old. We all have our own option. We can believe what we want to believe, and all of us can be right no matter what we believe. That's craziness. It's absolute craziness. The highest virtue for postmodernism, you want to guess what it is? It's tolerance. And yet they can be some of the most intolerant because they are the ones behind the cancel culture. In, in, post, in the postmodern worldview, no one has a right to say that his or her viewpoint is better or more correct than someone else's point of view. And tolerance for the postmodernists is, the, is extended only to those who embrace a relativistic worldview. Do you understand that that kind of thinking cannot coexist with an inspired, inerrant, infallible Bible? It's inevitable they're going to come into conflict. And the conflict today exists because we hold to absolute truth and they hold to tolerance and nobody is right. You can be what you want to be. If you're a boy, grown, you're born uh, with the, the DNA of a boy, the genetics of a boy, you can still be a girl if you want to. If you're born with the DNA or the genetics of a girl, you can still be a boy if you want to. And when you stand and you say, wait a minute, God created Adam and Eve, they look at you and they say, you believe an antiquated idea like that? Yeah, that's what we believe. We, we believe in the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. And you've got to understand, it's going to bring us into conflict with the, with, with the society around us. Young people going to college are going to see it more, more boldly than any of us saw it when we were going to college. It's going to be in their face all the time. Why? Because the postmodern thinking of today, not the modernist thinking, the postmodern thinking of the day is that there are no absolutes and you can be whatever you want to be and, and all you got to do is just, you know, if you feel it, you can become it. And there are no absolutes. Do you see the problem with that? Why is it so important that we come back and we go through over the coming weeks what we believe as a church? Because if you don't know it, you certainly, you certainly should know it. The things that we believe as a church are under attack. Beginning with the word of the living God. We don't believe the Bible anymore. We, we don't, by the way, I tell people occasionally, and I'm, I'm almost through here, but 
We, I, don't, uh, I tell people this, and then I quickly correct it. I, I tell them, I don't believe everything in the Bible. And they look at me, I'm talking about Christians, and they look at me and say, I thought you said you did. I said, yeah, well, I, I mean, I write all over the pages of my Bible, and I don't necessarily believe all the things that I write in, in the margins of my Bible. Now, I believe everything that God wrote. I just don't happen to believe everything that I wrote. <laughs> Follow what I'm saying? I want you to understand that this, this is not an optional, negotiable kind of a thing. This is something where we stand unapologetically. Whether it's the Old Testament, whether it's the New Testament, whether it's Jesus referring to the Old Testament or Jesus giving authority to, to his apostles to give us the New Testament, whether it's what the Scripture claims for itself, the prophecies that are fulfilled, that are evidence of the inspiration of the Bible, or all of the other things. And there's, listen, you can go to seminary, you can take an entire, well, you can do, you can do more than a semester. You can do a year or two on the inspiration of Scripture. The point is, the Bible is the foundation of our faith. It is the authority of our lives. And no one can be allowed to challenge that. I'm talking about believers in a church can be allowed to challenge that. People outside the church, I can't, I can't help what they do. But all of us have to come together with one heart and one mind. This book is God's word to us. And what it says is true. And we believe it and we stand on it no matter what anybody else says about it. I'm 65 years old. I've been a Christian since I was 16. How many years is that? That's 49? Is that 49? I did pass that math class. That's 49 years I've been a believer. And I want to tell you that I still believe everything that's written in this book, and nobody has ever been able to convince me that it's not true. It is the word of the living God.